0: Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. This is a, a continuation of the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of Tucson. If you're listening to one of our studies, you have a question, you can jot down the question, and then you can ask them here. Now, we'll take any questions from anyone about the Bible, about apologetics, about Christian living, um, nuances of the Christian life which we find in the pages of scripture. Our desire is to turn to the word of God to find how we are supposed to live. We've had a lot of questions lately about knowing whether or not we are genuinely saved. So I thought it would be good for us to spend some time talking about false believers And whether or not you are genuinely saved. How you can evaluate. So I've got a a little evaluation. But before we look at the evaluation as to whether or not we're genuinely saved, I thought it would be good for us to talk about salvation. How can I be saved? What is salvation like? Now Jesus tells us that there are going to be false prophets in the parable of the tares and the wheat. The kingdom of God is like a man who planted a field of wheat and his enemy came and added tares. But don't take the tares out right away because you might take some of the wheat. You'd have to start judging Christians if the non-believers were torn out right away. But wait until the end when the harvesters can bundle together the tares and burn them and gather together the wheat in the barn. So there are going to be false believers. Jesus, Jesus even said in Matthew 22:23, Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. So we have to know him. And the fact that we do things that are good or maybe even in the name of God, things like prophecy and casting out demons, doesn't mean that we're genuinely saved. Those are not the way you tell whether you are genuinely saved. Now let's talk about salvation for a moment before we get into our evaluation. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you confess Jesus is Lord. That means he's the one that directs your life. You are his subject. He is your Lord. He's giving you direction and he knows how to make your life what your life is supposed to be. He knows how to use you in the best way to make a difference in the lives of people around you. That's what the Christian life is all about. It's not about just having your best life now. It's about living for him and being used by him. And then it says that, that you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. It's interesting. Historians and scholars, the vast majority of men, I mean, vast majority, believe that there are several facts about Jesus that are absolutely true. That he existed, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he was buried, and that the tomb was empty. The vast amount of historians and scholars believe that. And then you add in, That God, if he created the world, is a miracle-working God and that God could get one of the greatest miracles around the greatest sacrifice of Jesus dying on the cross and raise Jesus up from the dead. And if you confess him as Lord and believe that God raised him up from the dead, then you will be saved. Now about salvation. Jesus said you must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now you're born of the flesh because you can see it. But are you born of the Spirit, where you now have the Spirit of God making you alive. So you are now born again, you're living a whole new life, and you're transformed. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away, and everything becomes new. Jesus said that eternal life is loving him and the Father, in John 17:3. He said, this is eternal life, that you love him who sent me and his Son. You've got to love them. It's a love relationship. And the person who you love, you want to please. I love my children and I want to please them. I love my wife. I want to please her. I love the Lord and I want to please him. I don't always do it, but I want to. It also says, if you receive him, you will be given power to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. That means you have to invite him in. He's not going to force his way into your life. He's going to draw you, and you can respond to that drawing or not. But when you respond to God drawing you, that's the God choosing you and God drawing you, but it doesn't mean he actually makes you get saved. You have to say, I want you in my life, as many as receive him. You have the power to the door to let him in. Now, also, we know when we move from death to life, we move from darkness to light, we move from sand and onto the rock. You also escape final judgment and punishment. At the end of the age, there will be a great white throne and the books will be opened and people will be judged. And then they will be punished. And when you are punished, the Bible says, some are beaten with few stripes and some are beaten with many. So God doesn't treat everyone the same but you're treated by what you actually did. It will be just. So you won't be able to malign God and making Him some kind of evil God for punishing. But there is a punishment for sin. And because we have sinned, there needs to be punishment. Now, making sure you are not a false convert is essential. So let's talk about some of the things that make false converts. Or Excuse me, let's talk about some of the things that don't make false converts. Number one, Struggling does not make you a false convert. If you're struggling in your faith and there's certain things you don't know or you wonder whether God exists, uh, there's doubts that enter in and so you start to think, am I genuinely saved? Listen, confidence does not equal salvation. Doubts cause you to dive in more. I think that God uses doubts, like he uses all things for the good to those who love him so that we'll dive in and get the evidence that we need. Now, sinning does not make you a false convert. We all have a sin nature. We sin and don't even know it. We fall into sin and don't know it until we are convicted. Now, some people don't like the term fall into sin because it looks like, oops, I fell into sin. But that's who we are. We don't always know it. And then God convicts it and we suddenly realize, I was wrong there. And we repent. When When you have a right relationship with God, you repent. But it doesn't mean, this side of eternity, that we are not going to have sin in our lives. 1 John 1, 8, 9 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the person who says, I don't sin anymore, I, I love God. Now it's very confident you could say, I don't sin anywhere as much as I used to. I can say that. I don't sin anywhere as much as I used to before I was a Christian. But I still sin. And then he goes on to say, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful. If you confess, he's faithful to forgive you. And he's just because Jesus went to the cross. And he'll cleanse you from unrighteousness, so you'll have right standing before God. Now, with that out of the way, let's take a look at this biblical evaluation as to whether or not you are a genuine Christian. The first question is... Do you keep the teachings of Jesus? Let me go ahead and put this up for you. This is our biblical evaluation to see if you are a genuine Christian. Number one. Oops. Number one. Get done with that. All right. Number one. Do you keep the teachings of Jesus? John 14, 23 says, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we'll come to him and make our home with him. So, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. This means that we will do the things that Jesus said. Now, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 is an interesting passage and we often use it to talk about faith and not works saving you. That no works can save you. Baptism, speaking in tongues, um, uh, sacraments, there's nothing you can do to be saved. But the passage is really about works after you're saved. Listen to what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we're saved by the grace of God, we're saved through faith. So God's the one who makes salvation available by his grace. Then we're saved by faith, trusting him. Now faith is not believing despite evidence. I heard an atheist say this recently. That's their definition. So they can make us it's a it's a straw man argument. They can make us look weak because we're believing without evidence. There's strong evidence to believe and and be a Christian on a lot of different fronts in a lot of different ways. But we trust in Him, and that's the idea. Through trust, by grace you have been saved. Through trust, you're trusting in faith. And that not of yourself, that is a gift of God, not of works. So we don't work to be saved. However lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we get saved and then we have good works that we walk in. Notice they are good works that we walk in now. And if you are not walking in those good works, you're not doing the things that Jesus said, then how do you have confidence that you made a commitment? Now note this verse. This verse tells us how we know whether or not we're saved. This is 1 John 2, 3 through 5. Now, by this we know that we know him. Okay, get it? By this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, and here's where we go back to the word of God. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. So twice it says that. We know that we're in him if we keep his word. So if you say, I'm a Christian, I love God, but you don't do the things God wants you to do, you're you're in an affair, you are seeking your own way, you're not doing the things God wants you to do, and, and you say that openly, or you know it openly, you're pretending, then you don't have any confidence that you are genuinely saved. The second thing, the first is, are you keeping His word? And it's not just do you want to keep His word, But you actually are doing the things that he said in the Bible. That's one of the transformations. Now, secondly, you are no longer practicing sin. We had talked about the fact that just because we sin doesn't mean we're not saved. But we don't want to practice sin either. Now, I read this verse earlier, but listen to what Jesus says here. I'm going to point out something different about this verse. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It is such, It is the lawlessness is so in your life that you actually practice it like a doctor practices medicine, like a lawyer practices law, you're practicing lawlessness or you're practicing sin or the works of the flesh. And if that is you, not that you sin and then repent or you are revealed that something's going on in your life, you're convicted by God and you repent, you turn from it, you ask him to forgive you, that's not practicing sin. You're navigating your sin nature, not practicing it. And so, if you are practicing sin, you have no confidence that you have made a commitment to Christ. In Galatians 5, 19 and 21, it says something very similar. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorceries, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, and just as I told you in the times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the first four things here are sexual. Lewdness, uncleanliness, lewdness, um, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness. Adultery, let's these with the first four. Adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, and lewdness. And then idolatry, sorcery, hatred. Are you a hateful person? A selfish ambitions you just seek in your own way? Are you practicing that? Are you practicing outbursts of angers? Are you just an angry person all of the time? Then you have no confidence because you're practicing sin. You actually 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 turn from it and manage your sin rather than practice your sin. Now the third thing is that you are bearing fruit. That there's fruit evidence that you are made a commitment to Christ. You're not just walking in the works uh, in, in in the works that God has made for you. You're not just doing the things He said and not practicing sin. But there's actual evidence that you made a commitment to Christ. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets. A false prophet is a false believer who comes to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer is no. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. So, if the fruit of your life is destruction, corruption, anger, um, malice, again, selfish ambition, then you have no confidence because the fruit will reveal it. Listen to what he said in John 15 By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So, we are not to just bear fruit, but we're to bear much fruit. Now, what's the fruit look like? Well, we got the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So, if you're a kind, peaceful, joyful, loving gentle, self-controlled person, then that's the fruit of the Spirit in your life. But if you are self-seeking and angry and not patient with people, then that is fruit that you don't have a commitment with them. Now, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm just saying you would want to look. Have you really made a commitment to him? Now, finally, the fourth is a life of compassion. In the end of the age, Jesus said, I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. And then he's going to say to them, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was sick and in prison. I was naked and you clothed me. and sick and in prison and you visited me. And they're going to say, when did we see it? Look at what it says here. Matthew 25, 44 through 46. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he said, then he will answer them saying, assuredly, I say to you Inasmuch as as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away in everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. We are compassionate towards people who are in need. The rich man and Lazarus is an interesting story. Most scholars don't believe it's a parable. Some do, but most don't. There's a name in it. You usually don't have names in, in it, and that's Lazarus, the poor man. And um, Jesus tells it without saying it's parable. He says there was a certain rich man. Now, this man lived luxuriously, and at his gate was a poor man who waited for the crumbs that came from his table, and the dogs came and licked his sores, and then they, they both died on the same day. And that's usually where people head off, to the afterlife, that the rich man is in torment and the poor man is in comfort. However, there's an overarching lesson in all of this, and that is that the rich man who lived in luxury and walked by a suffering human, couldn't even help someone suffering on his own front door, but walked by him instead. Do you help those on your own front door? Has God given you your finances so you can be sound and secure in your finances? Or has God given you your finances so you can help people? So you won't be like the rich man living in luxury. And you say, well, I'm not living in luxury compared to a lot of people in the world we are. And are we compassionate towards those who are in need? Are we walking by people who are in need in our front door? And that's what this rich man did. He was walking by people who were in need at his front door. Now this evaluation, which is very important for us to understand and look at. Are you keeping the teachings of Jesus? Are you uh, no longer practicing sin? Now, we know we sin, but we have to deal with it, what I call maintaining it, or maintenance on it. That doesn't mean we're maintaining sin. It means when we sin, we take care of it. Because we can't say we have no sin. Paul said, the very things I want to do, I don't do. And the very things that I don't want to do, those are the things I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, praise be to God, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we come to him and find forgiveness for our sins. Number three, are you bearing good fruit? Can you look at your life and go, I really am full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I'm walking in the Spirit, and from the Spirit, I'm reaping life. And finally, do you live a life of compassion? Are you like the rich man who walks by someone in need? And think about it. He might have made excuses. He might have said, I'm not going to help him. He'll use that money on alcohol. I'm not going to help him. He'll waste it. He's going to use it on drugs. Maybe, maybe not. But I think that we do the same thing. We go by people who are in need and we pass them by. What are we more like? The Good Samaritan? Or like those religious leaders who passed by on the other side of the road? May God convict us that we live out our Christianity and we know that we are Christians. You and say, you're saying that if I don't do these things that I'm not a Christian. Maybe not, because going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Growing up in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. Saying you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Cast down demons doesn't make you a Christian. It's, it's these things that the Bible says. If you say to me, I love Jesus, but I don't want to do what he wants me to do. That's a scary thing to me. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm simply saying, wow, you, you might not be. And so you genuinely need to make things right. Now, it's good to see you guys here. And if you're here for the very first time, really glad to have you here. Um, I hope that us talking about how we have evidence for whether or not we are genuinely saved will help you. If you have a question, you can write the word question or put a Q in front of your question. And then go ahead and uh, submit that. And uh, we will take your questions um, over the next, um, oh, what do you got, 40 minutes or so? And we will answer them. All right? So, it's good to see you guys. Uh, Good to have you here. Let me go ahead and get over my Bible here. And if you have um, a reference, add that in the question because I can take time to look it up and I can share them uh, there with you. All right. So, uh, first of all, I'm going to go back to the top here. It's good to see you guys. Good to see you interacting. I love the community that we have here. Love you guys. I hope God's doing really good, strong things in your life. Not just making you happy, although Christians are more prone to be happy than non-Christians, but that God is using you, that you can be someone effective to the world around you. So we have our first question from Albert. Albert, good to see you. Albert says, uh, part one, okay? Um, hello, Pastor. In Matthew 11, 11 and John 20, 29, Jesus speaks of those greater than John and Thomas. Do you believe in both? Do you believe in both? He's saying, those who never saw him and believe were greater. Let's take a look at these. He spoke of those uh, greater than John the Baptist and Thomas. So Matthew 11:11 11, 11, is Jesus saying to about John the Baptist that there will be gr- those greater than him, right? Let me just take a look here. Do you believe that both in both he's saying, these will uh, never saw him and believe are greater? Ah, so um, you are on YouTube, and so they limit how much you can say. So let's go down to part two. Here we go. All right. Part two, or could he be speaking to those who are filled with the Spirit? Thank you, Pastor Robert. All right. Thank you, Albert. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. <clears throat> and we're going to go to Matthew um, 11, 11, and we're going to take a look at that first. And put it up on the screen for you here. It says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So, I think, Albert, what he's saying here is that in the the new paradigm of Christianity compared to the old one of the law, that the greatest doesn't have the same relationship with God as the least in the kingdom of heaven. So, whoever is least in the kingdom, they're greater than John the Baptist. You have the spirit inside of you, like you said. I do believe that. And I believe that we are, all of the things that God has done for us that we don't really realize, we are kings and priests. We are royal. And we have a relationship with God and we go right to him. Nobody can go before us. And we represent God for the people that are, are around us. We have positions I don't even think we understand. We go boldly before the throne of God. I don't know if any of those things could be done um, in the Old Testament times. And then uh, your other one was John 20, 29. And that is blessed. Oh, I'm I'm, I'm not going to go to that. That's blessed are those that have not seen and yet believe. So that's a little different. That's saying, look, you've seen it. You've got the absolute evidence right here in front of you. But people are going to have to rely upon historical evidence. They're gonna to have to rely upon some philosophical evidence, like the moral argument or the um, uh, the, the perfect design, the designer design, the creator creation argument. They're gonna to have, to, to have to rely upon those things. And like I said, we have so much evidence for God that we do believe, but we're not seeing. We can't, we don't see Jesus. Jesus doesn't appear to us. And so we believe and we haven't seen the things that he's seen doesn't mean we don't have any evidence. And blessed are those. And that's you and me. So, yes, we are, because of who we are in Christ, we are greater than the Old Testament saints. Meaning, they weren't they weren't priests and kings. Uh, priests representing the people, going right to God, representing people that don't know God, as we call out to God for them and live our lives in front of them. They aren't. They they weren't sons of God as we are, temples of the Holy Spirit as we are. We just go on and talk about several things that are that are 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 greater in us and because of what God did through us in salvation than the Old Testament saints. And I think that's what Jesus was talking about. So thank you, Albert, for the question. Uh, good question. I appreciate it. And uh, we have a question from Fact Check These Hands. Fact Check These Hands says. Why are so many Christians blind to the sense we're in the end times? I, I don't know. <laughs> the, the world we're living in is crazy. There's a lot going on. It seems like we are at the very least in an intense birth pain. And things may lay off and we may get another birth pain. But when it comes to... Just think about when COVID started. And co- when COVID started... There was a pestilence around the world that shut down the world. There were locusts who were, several swarms of locusts that were larger than, than most and were, were going, going through Africa and a few other places. Um, there were other things that the Bible says God's gonna judge the world by these things. And then we have riots. There's a flood in China right now that is just a horrible, awful flood that's just destroying things. Um, we we have, oh, gosh, we have division like never before. We have hatred. If you're if you're another political party than me, I'm gonna hate you. I hate you just because of that. Full of hatred, and the Bible says that in the last days the love of many are gonna grow cold. So I don't know why so many people are hesitant to say that we are not living in the last days. They're not looking up to see if Jesus is returning. I I don't know, but I think we are. And um, does that mean he, he's going to come back in our lifetime? I don't know. I would have thought for sure on the birth pain, because Jesus said these things are the beginning of sorrows, wars and rumors of wars and pestilences and earthquakes and all that. And when you see them happening, um, the end is not necessarily near, but it's the beginning of sorrows the beginning of birth pains. So when a birth pain comes, the, the you have the actual birth pain and everything gets intense, and then lays off, and then gets intense, and lays off, and then gets intense, and get more and more intense until the baby is born. So as time goes on, things are gonna get more and more intense. I would have said that Hitler, World War II, was a birth pain. Probably World War I was a birth pain. I would say that the financial crisis of 2008, that really set the tone around the world financially, was a birth pain. I would say that the in 2020 was a birth pain. I mean, here in Tucson, how could we miss it? Our mountain burned down. Literally, it caught on fire. And um, the pictures are just amazing at the, the uh, what, what's called the Bighorn Fire. So, um, the Catalina Mountains, if you're not familiar with it, um, are, are big mountains. They go up to, I think it's, um, Tucson's about 2,500 feet above sea level. They go up to 9,000 feet above sea level. So that's a good jump. It's it's bigger than the jump um, in Albuquerque of you're being 5,000 feet above sea level. And then the crest is 1,200 feet. The top of the Sandias is 1,200 feet above sea level. And um, let me just get this in here. I want to pull up a picture of the fire here. Um, images. And just show you what this looked like. It was just crazy. So here's one with the city lights with the mountain on fire. So that was the Bighorn Fire. So that's that's the Catalinas on fire. And they are not a small mountain range. Let's see if I can get this one up here. Look at this. So you got the lights of the city and then you got the mountains that were on fire. That was 2020. We could look out our window and see the mountain on fire. It was like I had a picture window in our living room. And you can look out and it's just Frame perfectly, they're the Catalina Mountains, and they are just on fire. And that was 2020. So, it seemed, because of the fire, because of everything that was happening, it seemed even more to me like we were living in the last days. And I believe that we are, and I think I could make so many um, evidences for the fact that we are living in the last days. Now, we have a question from Dan. Dan joins us from Facebook. Dan, good to see you. Dan says, question... With everything going on in the world, it is hard to listen to other people tell you that Jesus and God do not exist. Okay? Yep, I agree. When I hear this, I have to cringe. Pastor, why what are your thoughts on what I should do to um something all the negative negativity to to battle maybe all the negativity other than pray? There are some Christians out there who are what I call fake Christians, and we're talking about that tonight. I just got done talking about that, and are hypocrites, hypocritical Christians. What can I do to keep focused on Jesus and God? It's very confusing when we are surrounded by such wickedness. So, Dan, I appreciate uh, your question and um, what you're what you're facing now. Just with those around you who just seem to hate God and are attacking you and and the stand that you're making. But I would say that you realize Jesus said that it was going to be this way. He said that they're going to hate you. They hated me first. He said to rejoice when men spitefully use us. He said in this world you're going to have tribulation. We stand for him and we don't find our satisfaction or fulfillment in the things of this world. We find it in God. So we want to do the things that God calls us to do. And we are soldiers for the kingdom of God. We don't get entangled in the things of the world. And we realize we're there to to get these people saved, false Christians, to to see them come to Christ. We are ambassadors for Jesus, as if we're imploring with people, the Bible says, to, to, to come to God, be right with Him. We are witnesses filled with the Spirit that flows out of us because we've come to Christ and drink and it affects the people that are around us. We're in the midst of a battle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, so we put on our armor and we stand. And we don't think like, oh, I just, we're, we're in peace times and I'm just gonna go ahead and, you know, I wanna get as comfortable as I can and I, I wanna be as blessed as I can. No, this is wartime. We're soldiers, which means that we're ready. And we realize that this is going to happen. And we make our stand for him. Yes, I think you should pray, but you should put your armor on and pray. You should know that God will use you, Dan. You, somehow we, we somehow think that God's not using us and we forget that everywhere we go, we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. We are a city set on a hill, Jesus said, that cannot be hidden. So realizing the call that we have, then we do battle. We're doing battle at every service we have when we do the altar call and ask people if they want to give their lives to Christ. We are doing battle at that point because he's trying to stop people from coming in, but we've been given the keys to the kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Jesus said, behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will by any means hurt you. And so Dan, stand strong in Christ. Put on your armor. Be ready to go to battle for him for the souls of men and women that are around you. And know that God will use you. We've been given a guarantee of success. The gates of hell will not prevail against you. He's given us the keys of the kingdom. So let's go out and really do the work that God calls us to do. Don't worry about the hypocritical Christians. They're all around us. I think of the Ravi Zacharias case. He was one Going back to our first question, who was practicing sin. Someone asked me, Do you think that Robbie Zacharias was saved? I honestly don't know. He actually took girls with him to give him massages so he could take sexual advantage of these girls. Instead of, if okay, so he's got a bad back and he needs to have someone who's gonna give him massages. Okay? So he could have a guy do that, or he could have a girl do that. However, he should have been trying to win them to Christ, loving them instead of taking advantage of them sexually. And this was a lifestyle. He actually went away to places to write his books and and taking uh, taking these girls with him on a trip, on trips. Instead of winning them over the Lord, that's practicing sin. So don't worry about the hypocrites. Don't worry about those who are false Christians. Pray that they would come to Christ. Pray that the hypocrite would see I'm hypocritical here. I'm I'm practicing sin and I need to run from it. But remember, Dan, all of us sin, right? So we we want to be careful not to get on not to get too prideful. Starting to look down at people, but instead to say, you know what? There are fake Christians. But why are they fake? Are they fake because they don't know better? Are they fake because they haven't really they think that just going to church makes them Christians? Are they hypocritical? Everyone's played the hypocrite before. And so, we want to do the battle that God's called us to do, Dan. Standing strong for Him and being used by Him. And I hope that that is um, motivational for you because it is to me to know that we're in the midst of this battle fighting right now. All right? So, thank you, Dan, for your question. I really appreciate it. And um, I really, really do hope um, that you're able to get, you know, kind of past being down about it and just do the work that God's called you to do. So, Jari has a question. Jari, good to see you. Uh, will the demons be locked up with Satan during the thousand-year reign, or will they be hidden in the sh- hiding in the shadows among the people who still don't believe in Jesus as Savior? Thanks. Ah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I can definit- definitively answer that question. It might be something that I have to try to look up to see if there's anything in the Bible that would say that the demons are not still active in the world. Jesus is ruling with a rod of iron. The angels return with him, so maybe they are hiding. I, I don't know. That's a It's a good question. Um, it may be one of those secret things that belongs to God where we don't know, but um, good thought. Satan is an incredibly powerful being, and when he decided to no longer follow God, he became extraordinarily evil and is responsible for deceiving the nations. That's how powerful he is. But the Bible says when we see him, we're going to go, that's the guy that deceived the nations? So, um, I don't know, Jory. Good question, good thought, um, but I don't know that I've got the answer. Yeah, block. Okay, yeah, excuse me. Oh, yeah, got it, Dan. Appreciate that. Um, so, let's see. Just going to go ahead and look for another question here. Um, If you're new here, good to have you. Uh, We'll take questions on anything God-related, Bible-related. We'll take questions that are nuanced questions uh, because the Bible deals with nuanced questions. Now, we have a question from Vivian. And Vivian, good to see you. Vivian says, An area I'm trying to change is not using bad language when I get mad. Okay, that's good. And replacing bad words with fudge. Uh, still, um, Still a sin? Is the intention still the same? Um, I'm going to say not the same. All right? And there are those who believe that Christians can cuss. And the Bible says, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. And saying something hurtful to someone is certainly worse than dropping a hammer on your toe and beep, you say something. Okay? Okay? You also don't want to take the Lord's name in vain. You don't want to use God's name as a curse word. Our world so hates the idea of being under God that it has made, made the name of God and Jesus a curse word. You, you wouldn't People don't do that to Muhammad or to Allah or to Krishna or anyone else. There's, there's something behind the fact that God is real And Jesus died on the sins that the world so hates God that they'll use him as a curse name. I like what Ray Comfort says when he asks, you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? And um, they'll say, "Uh, yes. And he says, why would you do that? Would you use your mother's name as a curse word? So you think about that. Would you use your mom's name, someone you love, as a curse word? No. Well, why not? Because you love them, because you respect them. And so we don't want to use God's name in vain. Now, um, so one of the things that I'll say is, "Golly, that's that." One of the things I, I get frustrated. Something happens. I'm like, "Golly, I, I can't believe that." And I don't know. Is that a replacement for something? Is fudge? We re- know fudge is a replacement for. Um, I don't think it's the same. I think there's even honor. In, in trying to get that language out of, out of your, your mouth. I think that's good. But I also think it is a substitution for it. So, better is not doing it. Worse is actually using the cuss words. Using words that are replacements are not as bad, but it's not good. So, I mean, and sometimes people will um, you know, shoot, you know, uh, as I said, golly or um, uh, cheese and crackers, you know, something along those lines. Not as bad, but still not as good as not doing it. Instead of just saying, you know, instead of not using it. So Vivian, I um, I hope that you can, can really get a handle on that. Um, I, um, I'm i trying to think how often I use words like that. You know, geez or golly. You know, those, those kind of things. Um, I think in the bigger picture, they're a lot more innocent than using God's name in vain or using a curse word. Uh, but it would probably be good for all of us to try to get that out of our lives. Not being legalistic, overly legalistic about it. And not thinking that I'm separated from God because I said golly, right? Because there are people who will do that. This is what I mean when I say a fundamentalist—not someone who believes in the fundamentals, but a fundamentalist who has no nuance in his life at all—will look at that and go, "You said golly, and that's a sin, and you're not walking with God, and you're not right with God because you said golly." And to that person, you say, "Give me a break. Give me a break." Let me, let me walk through life and I'll figure this out for myself. Leave me alone. Stop judging me. I think that's a true point of saying, stop judging me. So, I'm glad you're working on that, Vivian, and I hope that you do get a handle on it. Remember, these are matters of conscience. And if in your conscience it's wrong to say, golly, then you better not say it. Because to you it's sin. And if you're going to tell other people that they don't use replacement words, then you better not use them. Or don't use God's name in vain, then you shouldn't use God's name in vain. Um, part of it too here, Vivian, is going to be getting a handle on outbursts of wrath. Right? That was in that list of things that people practice who don't enter the kingdom of heaven. So, you want to deal with the outbursts of, outburst of wrath as well. That the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Patience is when you're getting angry and upset. And now you're patient. And then you're not going to have a tendency to use these words if you can keep yourself from getting mad. And this may be a whole new battleground for you, maybe something you haven't thought about too much. And the outburst of anger that would make you say fudge may be worse than saying, you know, fudge. Because that's, you know, what's at the bottom line of this. All right. So, thank you, Vivian. I really appreciate that. Um, We have a question from Henry. Uh, Henry says, let's see. so, um, So, if someone genuinely believes in Christ and accepts him as a savior, but doesn't do well keeping his word, habitually sinning, okay? They aren't saved, even though they still believe. Yeah, because saving faith, it's possible. Let me put it this way. Rather than trying to use someone as an example of that, because I don't know whether someone's genuinely saved or not. And I'll always tell people, listen, if you say, I love God, I just don't want to do what he says, then I'm scared for you. I'm not saying you're not saved, but but there's a possibility you're not. Because let's just take the person who says that, who is in habitual sin, won't stop it, and says, I'm a Christian. Because I believed. Where's the evidence? How do you know? That's what we're talking about. How do we know? You know, we talk about Calvinism, someone who's chosen by God and or someone who's chosen by God to, to perish uh, and you got the one vessel of honor and one vessel of dishonor and you say, well, I'm a vessel of honor. Well, how do you know that? How do you know you're a vessel of honor? What if you're not? What if you just follow for a little while and then you fall away? What if you're like John MacArthur's assistant or Billy Graham's assistant that walked away from God at a certain point? And you would say he was never saved because he went away from us because he wasn't part of us. So you have no assurance until you get to the end. But for us who believe, look, I believe that if I receive Christ, believe in him, there's going to be transformations that happen in my life. One of those is going to be I begin to keep his word and I'm going to do that until he returns and I know, or until I die and I know that I'm saved. I have an overwhelming confidence that I have given my life to Christ. I'm going to move your question down here, Henry. I have an overwhelming confidence that I have a commitment to Christ and I live for Him and I'm saved and I'm going to heaven because I believed. And you say, well, that's you then who is, uh, you then that, that carries the weight of making sure that you make it to heaven. No, I'm kept by faith through Him is what the Bible says. I can't keep myself, but I'm kept by faith through Him. And as I live for him and, and do his word and live that transforming power. So if someone is a genuine if someone genuinely believes, there's gonna be the evidence. You can't have a genuine believer who says, I'm gonna do my own thing. I'm not I'm not doing what God says. I mean, consistently. He might say that in, in his in his flesh and and need to repent from it later, but you're talking about someone who habitually sins. So believing is going to have fruit. And if there's no fruit, has he really believed? So a genuine believer is not going to be the person you're talking about. So they're they're mutually exclusive. You say, so if a genuine so if someone genuinely believes in Christ and accepts him as Savior, but still doesn't do well in keeping his word, habitually sins, they aren't saved even though they still believe. Now there's a scale, a bell curve here. Some people do better at living for Christ, being transformed, doing the things that are evidence and the fruit. And some people don't do as good. So, I don't know where that bell curve is. I don't know or I don't even know if it's a bell curve because that's based on how people do. There is just some people who do better and some people who do worse. And I don't know where the line is. But I'd rather not stay by the line. I'd rather not go, you know what, I'm not going to do what God wants me to do. I'm generally saved. I got saved. I raised my hand at a service. I said, Lord, I believe in you. I want to follow you but now I'm not following him. If you say I'm a true believer, but you're not following Christ, are you really a believer? A true believer, if you're not following him? If there's no evidence of your salvation. And and you're going to be the person who goes, I don't know whether I'm really saved. I wonder, am I really saved? Well, do you want to do the things he told you to do? No. And then I would go, I I understand why you're struggling. Because you don't want to do the things that God wants you to do. All right, so so thank you, Henry. I hope that's helpful for those who are out there who maybe have raised their hands, made a commitment to Christ, but didn't follow through with it. You aren't following Jesus. How are you going to be a follower if you're not following? How are you going to be an ambassador for him if your life hasn't been transformed? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away and everything becomes new. So what does it mean if you are in Christ, And you don't become a new creation. And the old doesn't pass away. And the the new doesn't come. Well, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away, everything becomes new. There's got to be the transformation. That's the evidence. And that's how we know that we know him because we keep his word. Some people do it better than others. However, I don't want to be that person that wants to live by the line. Where's the line where I'm not saved to saved? Where's the line where I've never made a commitment or have made a commitment, damn? I just want to live for Jesus and, and live for him wholeheartedly. All right. And again, doesn't mean I don't sin. Doesn't mean I don't need to make things right again. Doesn't mean I don't have a sin nature. Doesn't mean that sometimes I don't realize later on, gosh, that's not, that was sin. Gosh, I was prideful. Gosh, I was, you know, whatever it is that there's a revelation as the Holy Spirit convicts you. All right. So we have another question from Susan. Susan says. How do you get, let me bring it on the screen here for you. So Susan says, um, how do you get one to understand Jesus is key? While they say they believe in God and don't believe Jesus is the only way. All, um, All scripture is challenged. Yeah, how do you get one to understand that Jesus is key? While they say they believe in God, they don't believe Jesus is the only way. Yeah, I would say they're not believing God's word, un- unfortunately. And we we can't manipulate them. If we manipulate them and they're not really doing it, we can't do it for them. So we can try to share scriptures with them. We can tell them what real salvation is. But when someone says, I believe in Jesus, he's just not the only way. That's a, That's an ad hoc argument. Where do you have evidence for that? The evidence is, Jesus said, the Bible says, there's no other name given under heaven whereby men can be saved. So then, she's got to go, I don't believe the Bible. All right. so if you don't believe the Bible, then what's your authority? You? Your own heart? So you've got to come back to maybe that right there. Why do you believe what you believe? Instead of saying... Um, instead of just trying to you know, maybe throw scriptures at them, trying to really have a real genuine conversation about what's true and what's not true and what's the authority for the Christian. Is it the Word of God or not? Is the Word of God inspired or not? So I hope that's helpful Susan. Um, And, um, you know, I, I know that that there are people out there that have these kind of statements and if they're not following scripture, how can they be confident? Alright, so thank you. So Matthew Wilson has a question. Matthew, good to have you joining us. Uh, hello Pastor Robert. When it says in the Bible, Jesus says, go and sin no more, is that sinless perfection? Because we fall short of God's glory. Um, yeah, so I'm thinking of of where Jesus said that. Jesus said that to the woman caught in the act of adultery. He said it to the woman at Simon's house that wept at his feet. And he's forgiving her of her sin. And she was a loose woman at best, maybe a prostitute. And he says, go and sin no more. So he's saying, go and don't be involved in these things anymore. It doesn't mean she's going to reach sinless perfection that's never taught in the Bible. In fact, it says that if you say, you know, you have no sin, then you're lying. We still have the sin nature. God doesn't take our sin nature away. And you know that, right, Matthew? We all know that. Because, hey, when I became a Christian, I thought, it's only going to take me a couple weeks, and I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be walking in perfection. And I went to a church that taught sinless perfection. And I would get to where the biggies in my life were gone for a while, and I would think I got there just to fail. There was even a teaching done at our church called the, the Cliffs of Perfection. So, we climb these cliffs to get to perfection. And these are the things you need to do to climb those cliffs, they were really the cliffs of insanity is what they were. And I remember shortly after I'd been at that church that was teaching the, um, the part of the holiness movement, teaching that you could get to a place where you didn't sin. Someone at that church told me they hadn't sinned in 12 years, which, of course, they were lying at that moment. They were actually sitting. at the moment. They said they hadn't sinned in 12 years. They are lying about it. Um, but I listened to a, a t- message by Chuck, Pastor Chuck, on grace. He said something like, You thinking that you can use up the grace of God is like a bird landing on one of the great lakes and thinking, I can't take a drink because I'm going to use up the water in this great lake. God's grace is so much bigger than your sin, so much better than your sin. And so we have God's grace but we don't have sinless perfection. And this is where Paul, again, in Romans 7, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be it is Jesus Christ, for there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, not sinless perfection. The the um, Oftentimes, we take the sum of words and we take that as if the sum of words always is what the statement is. Now, what I mean by that is, um, like idioms. Uh, it's raining cats and dogs outside. I actually do think it's raining. I hear thunder and lightning. So it's raining cats and dogs outside. And then somebody goes, Robert said it was raining cats and dogs. He, he thinks dogs and cats fall from the sky. What's wrong with him? You don't do that. Because you know that it means something, that it is an idiom. I, um, I heard Mike Winger talking about three days and three nights, the statement. And he went to the Old Testament to a passage where it was used as an idiom. It says three days and three nights, and then it says, and the next day, so that it gives the time frame, and, and it really is an idiom. So we can take words, meaning, you know, go and sin no more, and go, well, Jesus was telling her not to sin anymore, so she had the power to not sin anymore. We just don't, we don't communicate that way. We say things all the time that if I had to be pedantic in what I say, meaning exact, then we would lose communication because we don't say things exact all the time, but we understand it. Okay? So, when Jesus said, go and sin no more, it wasn't like, well, we got to take his words, like go and sin no more means she could go and sin no more and that she never sinned again. Okay? So, thank you, Matthew, uh, very much for your question. I appreciate that. Uh, let's see, we have a question from Frank Sinatra. Hey, Frank, good to see you. Uh, (laughs) Again, I'm trying to think of a Frank Sinatra song to sing. Um, The way you look tonight. Um, That's the only only one I can think of. Um, Question, Luke 18, 19. Why does Jesus acknowledge, why doesn't Jesus acknowledge that he's God? Ooh, this is a good question. All right, let let me go there. Um, Jesus does acknowledge on several occasions that he is God, and we'll talk about that a little bit. How much time do we got left? Uh, Just five minutes. Okay, I got enough time to deal with it. So, let's go ahead and go to the Bible here. Let's look at your passage, Luke 18, 19, 19. Um, And let's put it up on the screen. All right, so let's go back on one here. Um, Now, a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, What shall I do to inherit your life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good um, but one, that is God. Now, Jesus isn't saying that he's not God and that he's not good. He's asking him, Why did you say call me good? There's no one who's good but one and that's God. He's actually, I believe, making a reference to himself as God. But he's not saying it directly or indirectly. He's just asking the question, Why are you calling me good? What what do you think? Do you think that I really am good? There's one who's ultimately good, and that's God. Now, you can be good by human standards. The Bible says Joseph of Arimathea was a good man. So, you can be good by human standards. But by God's standards, only one is good. Then he tells him, you know the commandments, and talks about keeping them. Um, So, so here's what I think. I'm going to go ahead and put your question back up here as we wrap this up. This will be our last question for today, All right. Um, So, when someone says, I'm God... They, crazy people say that. So, if you're genuinely God and you need to communicate to people that you're God, having saying it yourself isn't necessarily the best thing to do. But saying it in ways that they can look it up or other people attesting to you being God like Thomas, my Lord and my God and fell down and worshipped him. That's more powerful. People say they're God all the time. The Jerusalem effect. People believe they're Jesus all the time. They believe they're God in Jerusalem. They get to Jerusalem and they believe they're God. Um, and it's an actual thing. The Jer- Jerusalem effect. So Jesus didn't go around telling people he was God because people do do that. Instead, he said things like, before Abraham was, I am. And if he spoke Greek, and there's a question to whether he spoke Greek or Aramaic, if he spoke Greek, he would have said, ego me, um, ego which is the Greek to um, the Greek of I am, uh, that I am. Uh, Yahweh. Or yad He vad he, the The Y-H-W-H. The Tetragrammaton. The four letters that make up God's name. Um, before Abraham was I am. When they came to arrest Jesus, and he said, who are you looking for? And they said, um, G- uh, for Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. The he is in italics, meaning it's not in the original text. It was added in by the, by the, uh, people who put the, the version together to add context or to add make it sound better, understand it better. But it doesn't do it. I am, and they fell back on the ground at the power of him saying I am. So there's all of these things that Jesus says. I and my Father are one. There's all of these things that point to Jesus being God and saying that he is God. Um, From here on out, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory, given power and and kingdom and dominion. And that's Daniel 7, where you have thrones set up in the Ancient of Days. This is the Old Testament. The Ancient of Days on thrones, and you have the Son of Man coming on the clouds to join him, and the Son of Man given kingdom, power, and dominion forever and ever. So you have a human who rules and reigns with, with the Ancient of Days forever and ever on thrones. That's in the Old Testament. This is why when you really get into the heart of Judaism, there's a better understanding of the Trinity than what you think. Because you see that there are more than one powers that are going to rule forever in the Old Testament. Michael Heisler, who recently passed away, was great at pointing these things out. So Jesus didn't acknowledge his God or run around saying, I am God because people who do there are people, crazy people who do it. He had to have other people who would say, you are God. And, um, and that was done okay Thomas is just one example of Jesus saying that um, you got to read it as it is you can't when you when you read a passage like that that says um, why do you call me good? no one's good but God So he's not saying he's God or not God. He's simply asking the question why do you call me good? what's your what do you believe I'm God? Why do you call me good? no one's good but one that's God. So he's not denying that he's God. And he's not saying he's God, he's asking him why he called him good. So he's looking back and saying, Who do you think I am? Why are you calling me good? All right. So, um, got a few other questions here. I'll get this um, later on from Keith, uh, this uh, log for questions. And,. We will be praying for it. We see a question here from Justin. So I'll take a look back at these questions and see if I can't choose one of them for the first question of our next Q&A. All right, so it's been good seeing you guys. Uh, Good having you here uh, with us. Uh, I hope that the Lord really blesses you. So we are talking about false believers tonight. Um, We're going to be talking about um, Simon the the sorcerer, or as I call him in the the title, Simon the warlock, the first false convert. And we're going to be talking about what it means to be a genuine Christian. Some of the things we talked about today we'll be talking about tonight. Uh, but we'll also be talking about what real salvation is and how Jesus warned us uh, about you know, really being a Christian. So that'll that's in Acts chapter 8 today. We're going to finish up that chapter before we go on to chapter 9. And by the way, you've got Simon in chapter 8, who's a false convert, and then you have a real convert in the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 9. So once again, we see that the Bible couples Uh, events together that we can see it and go, okay, we got a true believer and a false believer. So, we'll talk about what a true believer really is in our study next week. All right, so uh, good to see you guys. Have a great weekend. May you be really blessed in church. May God just really do some great things in your life um, while you're there. It's been really good having you here. Love you guys, love this community. Um, And um, I pray that God just does absolutely wonderful things in your life in making you stand strong, be a soldier for Jesus, walk in the spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Um, uh, and, And when we talk about battling sin, delight in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. So do the spirit. From the spirit, you reap life. So do the flesh. From the flesh, you'll reap corruption. All right. So thank you very much. Um, I'm out. Got a service in about an hour. So we will see you guys later on.